It's awesome. Well, my name is Patrick Gala, uh, and uh, for a lack of a better term, I am Randall's intern at this point. Uh, I am born and raised uh, right here in Buffalo, New York, in the North Buffalo, Kenmore area. So it is uh, exciting to be home. Uh, I came from Virginia, where there I was... um, in, I still am in, a seminary program at Liberty University School of Divinity, Uh, so I have one semester left. Uh, It's a long program, uh, and so I'm excited to be almost done. And so it feels good to be home, to be back in Buffalo the last three years or so. I've been in Virginia, and uh, this is the longest amount of time that I've been able to be home. And uh, I I got here July 4th weekend, and I will be with you all until uh, maybe mid to the end of August. So I'm excited. Uh, Hopefully you are too that I'm here. You've probably been wondering who this kind of Italian guy is walking around your church for the last few weeks. And so maybe you're wondering why I'm here. Well... Uh, A few months ago, I, uh, through the Buffalo Grapevine, got connected with uh, Pastor Milo, and uh, so I reached out to him, and uh, we started just kind of having some dialogue and some conversations, and uh, I'm, like I said, coming into the last semester of my school, I had a free summer, and and I just uh, worked with the church for a little bit in Kentucky. I was coming to Buffalo, and through some prayer and a few conversations, and and I'm sure the prayer of your elders, uh, they extended me the invite to come and, and to help. So uh, I'm excited to be helping and to be serving with Randall Church. It's been awesome getting to know you uh, so far. And so, like I said, it just feels good to be home. And uh, while I've been with some Virginians and some Kentuckians, feels good to be home with uh, Buffalonians. So uh, it's a very classic move as I come up here this morning. Uh, we uh, buy a pastor. When you have an intern, you, um, of course, you're going to make the intern preach the message that has to cover two chapters. So thank you, Pastor Milo. I, I appreciate that. Uh, in all seriousness, um, we do have a lot to cover this morning, but I'm excited for the text that we have before us. Uh, I think it is a good word to us. I think it's very timely and um, very pertinent uh, for where we are at. So as you can see, the title of the sermon this morning is Chasing Shadows. So Chasing Shadows. And um, we're going to continue to pursue the attempt to find the meaning of life. So if you will, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. So you can go ahead, you can turn there. You can kind of maybe stick your pen or your thumb in the text. It will be there in just a few moments. But as we continue our series this morning, uh, we're finding ourselves in chapters 5 and 6. And we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been listening to the words of Solomon, the wise king. And, and Solomon, we know, was the wisest man to ever live. And uh, we know this for certain because it tells us this in 1 Kings 3. You don't need to turn there, but it says just as Solomon was coming into the kingship of Israel, he kind of looked at himself and realized that he was lacking some wisdom and some discernment. And lacking wisdom wisdom and discernment is not really something you want to be lacking when you're getting ready to be overseeing a kingdom, right? And especially in this case, God's kingdom, the Israelites. And so what he does is he prays and he asks God for wisdom and discernment. God looks on his prayer. He takes pleasure in this prayer. He's glad that Solomon is asking uh, for this thing, and and he grants him this wish. And so what we have here is 
we've been listening and following along with Solomon, who said, and it says in 1 Kings 3 that he was the wisest man that ever lived and will be the wisest man ever to live. And so we've been reading and listening in on the words of this man. And interestingly enough, the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, whose writings we have in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, is dealing with probably the one, one of the most wrestled with questions that all of humanity deals with. And that is the meaning of life. And in true philosophical form, Solomon lays out an argument that represents different worldview systems. And so these different worldview systems, as we will see, and I'll help us see this morning, they stand in opposition to the biblical worldview system. As he embarks upon his endeavor to evaluate, hashtag, the meaning of life, he looks at everything that is under the sun. So this phrase, under the sun, we keep seeing this through Ecclesiastes, and essentially what that just means, we would just say all of life. He is saying under the sun. I've, I've, I've searched everything under the sun. We would simply say all of life as we know it. And so he looks at man's wisdom. He looks at man's wealth. He looks at pleasure, power, legacy, and he leaves no stone unturned. And so he, as he evaluates each area or avenue of fulfillment, he, through his own personal experience, finds that all of these avenues, all of these contrasting worldviews come up short as he searches out the meaning of life. None of them satisfy. He, he, he evaluates wisdom. Even in his own wisdom, it falls short. He evaluates wealth, and wealth falls short. It doesn't satisfy. It only satisf satisfies for a season. Then he moves on to just relentless pursuit of pleasure. And this too for Solomon falls short. And then power, and as we've seen even through history, power corrupts and corrodes. And even legacy for the man to pursue can be forgotten. And so remember, if you will, before we get in our text here this morning, remember, remember with me back to uh, uh, first uh, chapter 1. Solomon opens this book with this blanket statement. If you remember and you can recall, everything is meaningless, he says. Somewhat depressing, I know, but hang with me. So this is probably why the book of Ecclesiastes gets a bit of a bad rap. Because Solomon opens up with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It reminds me of like a true like philosophy major who's in a coffee shop and he's just kind of spouting off random stuff. And you're like, what is this dude talking about? But hang with me. He explains that everything in life, when it's made to be at the center of our thoughts, when it's what captivates us, when it's what drives us, it's meaningless. And he says, we can spend all of our life, all of our time, all of our strength pursuing the spouse, the perfect spouse, pursuing the perfect job, the car, the houses, the white picket fence, the 2.3 kids, all of these things, but it all falls up short. He covers the meaninglessness of work, of self-indulgence. He covers the meaninglessness of wisdom and wise living. And so maybe you've been sitting here and you've 
like myself, when I started studying the book, it's, it's a bit tough to track with. And so maybe you've kind of been like, bro, what, what's, what's up, man? What, like, I don't know what's happening here. Maybe you're asking yourself what's been going on. I can't quite follow. Well, well, let me just kind of sum this up real quick, kind of what it will bring us to his arguments so far as we get into our text in chapter 5 and 6. And so as a good philosopher and an apologist, and as we're introduced to him as the teacher and preacher, he's reasoning with us. And he's saying, come, reason with me. Listen to what I have to say. And at the end of chapter 2, he, he, remember chapter 1, he lays out everything is meaningless. Everything under the sun, all of these vain pursuits are meaningless. And then when he gets to chapter 2, he explains that God is the giver of all things. So we see now God is interjected into his argument. Then in chapter 3, he moves into the argument as it continues to develop and interjects a thought that God is sovereign over seasons and time. And so he's continuing to build this argument in chapters 1 and 2 and 3. And the argument adds layers and layers and layers. And this argument begins to unfold and it makes more sense to us as he interjects God in chapter 2 and 3. And so we see his argument begin to take some shape in 5 and 6 in the text that we have this morning. And he begins to reason with us again even further. And as we get into these chapters, the arguments unfold. And he really kind of begins to portray for us for the first time the biblical worldview. And so he's been laying out these contrasting worldviews of wealth, the pursuit of power and money and possessions. As we transition into five and six, he lays out a biblical worldview. And so let's stop for a second. Maybe you're asking yourself, okay, what is a biblical worldview? Well, a worldview at its most basic level, a basic definition, a worldview is essentially the lens through which you view the world and interact and interact with it. It's your philosophy of life and your conception of the world. And so every worldview in some way or another, it really attempts to address a problem. And in our case here, as we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, the problem that we're attempting to address and Solomon is addressing for us is how we can find deep, true meaning to life. See, in a, an opposing view that opposes the biblical worldview would say that money is the pursuit The pursuit of money is what brings meaning to life. And yet another opposing worldview would say maybe life is all about happiness. And then still another would try to attempt to solve the problem of finding the meaning of life to just saying just pursuit of power. Maybe through that's your job. And so one by one we see from this point on in chapters 5 and 6 and through the rest of the book that Solomon will take these contrasting worldviews and and pit them against the biblical worldview and he'll systematically dismantle them one by one. So like we've mentioned already, he'll demonstrate that wisdom and power and legacy and riches, they all fall short. He shows and demonstrates their deficiencies. He's a really good apologist. And he explains at the end of his arguments that they're all like chasing shadows a misrepresentation of the truth. And so as we get into our text this morning, I wanted to ask you a question. When it comes to the meaning of life, are you chasing shadows? 
You see a shadow as we all know, there's shadows in this room even now off the columns. It's a silhouette of an image. You can think of a person, a building, a tree. As the sun hits it, it casts its shadow onto the ground. And so the shadow is a fake representation of the real image. And so when I began to think of this concept with some help, I thought of um, the movie the P- Peter Pan. And so there's a lot of versions of Peter Pan, but one of the versions I, th- I thought of was Hook. And Hook is the version, came out in the early 90s, it's with uh, Robin Williams is the center of the movie, he is Peter Pan. And so the story with Peter Pan, he's, he's this old, mo- it starts with him being this old man who leaves Neverland. And Neverland is this weird magical place, if you're not familiar with it, where weird, like, magical things happen. For example, you fly. And so when he leaves Neverland, he, he loses his ability to be Peter Pan, which is his true identity. And so the story unfolds and he goes to Neverland. He finds his way back there. And because Neverland is this weird magical place and it's a really interesting place, he's introduced to his shadow. Yes, his, his shadow. And his shadow is kind of this weird, ambiguous Shadowy, shadowy figure, obviously, that plays all sorts of mean tricks on him. Uh, trips him, pulls his hat over his eyes, kind of makes fun of him. He's kind of a jerk, really. But Peter Pan needs his shadow. And because he needs his shadow, he chases his shadow all over Neverland. Thankfully, at the end, his shadow helps Peter Pan find him true, his true self. His shadow paints, sorry, his shadow points him back to his true identity, which is Peter Pan. And see, shadows are elusive. They're ambiguous. They can often be deceptive. They can also help point us to our true identity, however. And so in our text this morning, Solomon's going to introduce us to two shadows, And these two shadows often steer us away from the true object. So if you will, you can go ahead, you go open up your Bibles with me. I know that was a long intro, sorry, but uh, it needed to be done. And so when we look at five and six here, it's a a long passage, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Maybe that's a bit of a long passage. You maybe haven't heard that passage read out loud in its entirety, whole two chapters, but we're going to do that, all right? So I'm going to read through it. Hang with me. There's a few things that are a bit tough in there to understand, but we'll walk through the text after I read it and we'll put the pieces of the puzzle together. So starting in verse one, and I'm reading from the NIV version. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your vow lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, he says. Therefore, stand in awe of God. 
and in verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in the district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so does those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy a gift of God, he seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun, he says, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does the man. Even if he lives a thousand years, twice, over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? All man's efforts are from his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. And in verse 8 he says, What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and that man, and that man is, has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does this profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he possesses through like a shadow. Passes through like a shadow, excuse me. Who can tell what will happen under the sun after he is gone. And so I know that was a long text. Thanks for hanging with me. We made it through. The first shadow we're introduced to in this text is the shadow of false worship. And so as we look at sit 5, 1 through 7, are we chasing the shadow of false worship? See, for Solomon, worship is a lifestyle. It's not just an activity. Here we have the first punch of his argument as it unfolds. He begins to lay out his case for a biblical worldview. He shows us what it's like to live according to God's ways. 
Interestingly enough, though, he shows us by showing us what not to do. And here, in 1 through 7, 1 through 6, excuse me, he emphasizes three points. First, he calls us to worship God on God's terms. You see, he says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What you do who do not know that they do wrong. So he says, as you draw near to God, and so we don't worship in a temple like the Jewish system. Of course, we worship here in church, but even in our quiet time, he says, when you draw near to God, be careful to listen, read his word and listen to what he has to say and pay attention to the things that he's already commanded us to in this word. God desires obedience and consistency in our Christian life not outward actions that lack sincere sincerity behind them. If you're anything like me, I'm going to be honest with you this morning, you struggle with this. You see, the scripture tells us that God desires obedience over sacrifice. And sometimes when we come to God, we really like to come to God on our terms. So, not his. So we like to pick and choose sometimes the passages that we like over the passages that are hard for us. You, you know those passages that kind of call us to do things that are uncomfortable, that go against the grain. Instead, we like the, the, the passages that call us to be thankful. Sure, we're thankful. Every, everybody's thankful. We're very quick to create our own religion. Man's been doing this for, for thousands of years. It's what's really what comes natural to us. And so as we look at the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was huge for the Jews. It was the center of their worship. It is really what God ordained and set up for proper worship. And so what happened over time, however, is the Jews continued to come to the temple and offer these daily sacrifices. What happened was this, this worship and these things for, for out of love and a reverence for God became just empty religious acts. And no longer did they go into the temple to offer sacrifices to God out of joy and worship and sincerity. Instead, they went in the temple to offer these sacrifices to kind of check off the worship box. It was false worship. God sees right through this. He saw right through it then and he, he sees right through it today. And so some of us do the very same thing. I, I know I do. I'm guilty of it at times. Our scripted prayers, our religious routines, our empty fasts. This isn't true worship that flows out of a love for God. This is false worship. This is chasing the shadow of false worship. And then as we go into the next section here, in two and three, he, he emphasizes the prayer life. He says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Don't be hasty with God in prayer. Regarding these two verses, one commentator remarks, careless words are a reflection of a hurried inner life. What a true statement. I try to meditate on that all week. It's like, man, that is so true in my case. I come to God and I'm hurried and I'm rushed and I throw up these statements of prayer. There's no reverence. There's no respect. There's no awestruck. There's no communication of holiness before God. Our words carry meaning. And think for a moment, maybe that's a bit ambiguous. Think for a moment what this would look like in our own relationships with one another. Okay, so pretend like you were having a conversation like the way we kind of did a hurried prayer like he says here. 
So maybe it would sound something like this, mom, I love you. Um, can you please fold my, fold my laundry? And mom, can you please make my lunch? Oh, and mom, can I have $20 for gas? Oh, and mom, can you tell dad to turn down the television? It's way too loud. I know that sounds ridiculous and, and hopefully that's not a conversation that, that you have with your, mom, with your mother. Uh, I sure try not to. But that doesn't, uh, that doesn't communicate sincere worship or, or in that situation, sincere love. It communicates a, a false relationship. That's not a real sincere relationship. It doesn't communicate, I love you, I'm committed to you, I'm thankful for you. It, communi- it communicates really the opposite, that, that you're here for me, you're, you're here to fulfill everything that I need, uh, you kind of exist to take care of all of my needs and, and my wishes. And again, God sees right through that. And so a hurried prayer life and scripted prayers and, and this vain religiosity is a shadow. And it's the shadow of false worship. And so the last emphasis he makes in this short passage is uh, in 4 and 7. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. These verses are straightforward. All right, God views this as a big deal. Solomon calls the one who doesn't fulfill his vow a fool. And now this is essentially third century BC fighting words. All right. Have you ever made a promise to someone and, and, and haven't kept it? Think for a moment. Again, to confess before you, I know I have. And if we're open and honest with one another here this morning, I'm sure we all have. But guys, God doesn't want this for his people. You see, all through the Bible, God is a God of consistency. He's a God of order. And so as his people, we represent him. And so he calls us into this life, into this relationship, and in this relationship with him, he calls us to be people of consistency and of integrity and of character to do what we say we're going to do. And so really this speaks to the heart of our character. So in this short section here, false worship can be summed up as meaningless religiosity. The shadow is a shadow, this shadow is a shadow and a false shadow of of false worship and many of us at times chase it. See, going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions. But Solomon knows that God, again, he sees right through this. He sees right through our false worship because, because he knows this and because man has been doing this for centuries and centuries, he instead calls us to seek true worship. And true worship for Solomon, as he concludes in this section in verse 7, is to fear God. And to fear God, I know that's kind of a term that we use once in a while, we throw it around, but it essentially means this, to fear God is to have a respect, a holy reverence for him. A reverence and a respect that drives us to live according to God's ways. So he says, fear God. So as we see in this passage, 1 through 7, this first passage here in chapter 5, Solomon seeks to find the true meaning of life and, the, and on his pursuit of this, he, he looks at the shadow of false worship. And so he knows that we're tempted to chase this shadow. You think of all the empty religions that attempt to find the meaning in, uh, in life and, and they pursue this shadow. We're all guilty of it as humans. And so just as we are tempted to chase the shadow of false worship, 
We're tempted to chase the shadow of possessions and money. And this moves us into our next passage. And this is a huge passage. It's a big chunk. But we can essentially sum it up as this. He says, Solomon, possessions and wealth are meaningless. As we continue our hunt... As we continue our hunt to find the true meaning of life, just as Solomon does so prior in 1 through 7, he continues into this next passage for us. And remember, the problem we're trying to solve is finding the meaning to life. This is our hashtag, sorry, it was just on the screen, the meaning of life. And as we said, this is what every worldview attempts to answer. And so... As I just said, Solomon, in this next passage, he points us to the shadow of possessions and money. And he says, this too falls short. It doesn't fully satisfy. And so let's look at the text. I'm going to show you why. So first, wealth never satisfies. Look at verses 10 and 12 in chapter 5. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless, he said. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Wealth never satisfies. Maybe it does for a period, but never to the point through which in it we find the meaning of life. And and you guys know this song and dance. You know this story. I'm sure you've seen it in your own life. I've seen it in mine. The more money we make, the more things and possessions we're, we're tempted to buy. The more money we make, the the bigger our appetite really is for money. And the more money we accumulate and the more we want, it's kind of this vicious cycle, and Solomon points it out. So it may satisfy for a season, but in the end, it never gives us true meaning, lasting fulfillment. He also says, and he points out the fact that for some of us, being so rich with our possessions and money, it even affects the way we sleep. He says, uh, for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. They're constantly worried about their finances. They're worried about their cars, their mortgages, their 401ks, all of these things. But he says, the ones who labors righteously sleeps peacefully. What an interesting contrast. The one who, who labors righteously sleeps peacefully. See, the righteous man, this man, he knows that working is a commandment from God. He knows that money is a part of this system and possessions are a part of our world. And he realizes that he can work and earn a wage for himself that is due to him. But this isn't what life is all about. It's not, it's not the meaning of life. See, this man has the proper perspective. And so he realizes, as he works, that wealth never fully satisfies. Then the next point he makes in 13 through 17 in chapter 5 is this. We can't keep money forever. So what's the point, he says? It's not eternal. It doesn't last. He says in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We are eternal beings but money doesn't last for eternity. Look at 13 through 17. Solomon explains that just as we came into this world, so we will depart from it. We will depart this life with nothing. Death is the great equalizer. You know, we've all heard that uh, in life we do two things. We pay taxes and then we die. All right, that's essentially what he's saying here. It's a bit depressing, I know, but again, hang with me. You can spend your whole life, he says, pursuing money, possessions, wealth, stockpiling these, thing, stockpiling these things to the roof. 
our, our IRAs, our 401ks, checkings, and savings accounts, cars, homes. But at the moment of death, all of these things that we have piled for ourselves becomes meaningless. Why? Because we can't take them with us. And what, he, what does he call this life of chasing after these things? He says in verse 16 that it's a toiling for the wind. So at this point you're thinking, okay, Solomon, you're kind of knocking down everything that, uh, that we, you know, not necessarily believe in, that, but that we think is normal. You're, maybe you're asking yourself, this Solomon guy seems really depressed. And he, he, he does sometimes. But w- what is he saying? Is he saying that all money and possessions are evil? Is that what he's saying? No. Let's be clear. Look at verse 18. He alludes, he alludes to this fact that these things aren't evil in, the, in of themselves. He says, what I observed to be good, that is appropriate for a man to eat and to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. This is our lot. In fact, he says that money and possessions are a gift from God in verse 19. Money and possessions are not evil or bad in of themselves. Solomon is pointing out that the problem becomes the problem when we chase after these shadows, expecting to find in them the meaning of life. And so as the dialogue continues with Solomon, he goes on to say in six, uh, chapter 6, 7, verse 7, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. Our appetites are never satisfied. So when we chase possessions and money, thinking that in them we will find the meaning of life, we're led astray. Remember this. Remember that we're listening in and we're reading the passage of the wisest man to ever live. And that's kind of a concept that's hard for us to understand, but if we trust what God is telling us in 1 Kings 3, that this is the wisest man who ever walked the earth and will be the wisest man to ever walk the earth. So this is a guy, if we're going to listen to anybody besides God and Jesus, this is probably one of the best guys we can be listening to. And this is what he continues to say. And as the man who really is the king of Israel, he experienced unfathomable unfathomable amounts of riches. Yet at the end of his life, he explains that never did these things, nor will they ever fully satisfy him. He is telling us as we see his argument again unfold, layer by layer, that only in God can we find the true meaning of life. Only God can interpret how we can view these things, possessions and money, properly. Only in God can we find how we ought to steward our time and our talents and our treasures. And here's what I would say, that we are created to worship. And you don't have to flip there, but if you can recall Colossians 1.16, excuse me, it says this, and I'll read it for you. For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We were created to worship. We were created to have desires. And this is why we desire This is why we desire things. Deep down in the inside of all of us, we have desire. God has wired us this way. The world tells us to desire these things, to desire false worship and possessions and money. But Solomon, in the end, in 6, 9, he says, this too is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. 
we know that if we chase the wind, we can never get it. We can't reach out and grab the wind. So what's the answer for us? As this argument unfolds, what's the answer to our dilemma? As we have mentioned earlier, earlier on, that shadows are a fake representation of a real image. We can find ourselves chasing shadows and chasing many things. So here's, here's what we've seen so far. Solomon warns us against, one, chasing the shadow of false worship. And then again, he warns us against chasing the shadow of money and possessions. These are a fake representation of the real image. So instead of chasing these things, I want to challenge you to turn to and seek the source, who's Jesus. So Solomon discovers the answer to a true, meaningful life, and it's contrary to what we may think and what the world tells us. He says that a meaningful life is found not in the pursuit of self-fulfillment, but through the pursuit of a God-centered life. It means to live according to God's ways. He says, remember, to fear God. What does this mean again? It means to have a holy reverence for God, a holy respect for God, to live according to God's ways, to live a life seeking the kingdom of God. This is a God-centered life. And the God-centered life is the best answer, as Solomon says, and as I stand here and say to you too. It's the best answer to our dilemma and the quest to find hashtag the meaning of life. Now let me show you why. As we fast forward in the New Testament, we get a full picture that Jesus, God's holy and perfect son, is at the center of a God-centered life. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 10, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 12. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach another 40-minute sermon on Luke chapter 12, so I'm sure some of you thought that. And so here's the deal. As we look at chapter 12 in Luke, this is probably a passage that you're familiar with. And let me just say this. There is no way that I can look into the mind of Jesus and know for sure, and maybe I'm crazy, you can tell me after the service, but I feel like Jesus literally got, just got done reading Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, the passage that we've been talking about, and now is directly addressing the same issues we just walked through. If you look at Luke chapter 12, Jesus teaches through several different parables, two of which speak exactly to what we have been talking about. Look at uh, verse 1. He deals with the false worship of the Pharisees. And then later on in the chapter, he deals with the pursuit of riches. So let me just sum up verses 1 through 3. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. A lot of us know this. And so these were the guys that were supposed to be holy of holy, right? They were like the holiest men there were. They were the ones that were before God, seeking God on behalf of the people. They were the ones that were to be an example. But instead, Jesus in this passage of 1 through 3 in Luke 12 calls them hypocrites. Why? Why does Jesus call these religious men hypocrites? Well, they were hypocrites because they looked the part, they prayed in public, they fasted, they made it known when they fasted, they acted as if they've never sinned, but their hearts didn't match up. Their worship didn't align with their hearts. They became consumed with meaningless religiosity. And as Jesus calls them hypocrites, he wanted nothing to do with them. And then as we fast forward and look at verses 13 
through 21. This is a parable of the rich fool, and this man spends his entire life chasing the shadow of money and possessions. But when he finally reaches the point to which he feels that he may be comforted in his own security that he's kind of amassed, he dies. Jesus says that on that day, his soul is demanded for him. And if we look look back at verse 15, Jesus says this, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so the answer is, it's simple. As Jesus lands the plane and as we conclude this morning, he lands it for us. He wraps up all of these thoughts and just really recapitulates what Solomon has been saying in 5 and 6. And he answers in verse 30 and 31. Look at that in verse 30 and 31 of Luke 12. He said, For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added unto you. This is why the gospel is so beautiful. Because we, in our own desire, want to chase all of this false worship. Again, when we look at Colossians 1.16, we're created to desire. We're created to worship something. Jesus steps in and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am true worship. And so the biblical worldview, as we can kind of, if Solomon hands off the biblical worldview baton to Jesus, this is what the biblical worldview looks like as we fast forward to the New Testament. First, Jesus reconciles. False worship can't reconcile us. Only true, only true worship can. True worship is the worship is the worship that sincerely seeks the kingdom of God. And true worship is found in Jesus. Jesus reconciles sinners to a holy God. Man has sinned, we know this, and he falls short of God's righteous desire for perfection. Did you catch what I just said? God righteously desires perfection. And as Paul tells us in Romans 5 that we all fall short of this. We inherit the sinful nature that Adam has passed on to us one by one by one through the generations to you and to me. Every single person that steps on this earth is inherited the sinful nature. We fall short of the perfection that God demands. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all know this. We all know that we do. Secondly, Jesus fulfills. Possessions and money will never fully satisfy us, but Jesus promises to completely fulfill. You guys remember the passage in John 10.10, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly, he says. See, we are slaves to our passions and to our sin. And the very sin, when it's fully conceived, the Bible tells us, it gives birth or brings forth death. In man's current standing, separated from God, man is dead in his sins. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 2. But Jesus says he comes to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. And remember, just as we listened to the man Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live, now we're listening to the words of Jesus, who is the man who resurrected from the grave. No one in history has ever done that. Thirdly, Jesus sustains Pursuing anything else above the pursuit of the kingdom of God, it does not sustain us. When we're in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Jesus himself says that none can pluck those who believe in him from his hand. And going back to Ecclesiastes, if if you remember in Ephesians, uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says that we were all created for an eternity, that there is more to life than just what we see in front of us. And we seek the kingdom of God. 
through confession and repentance. And if we trust in the risen Savior and what he promises to sustain us in this life, yes, but sustaining into the next life. And when we approach the biblical worldview, the biblical worldview finds a centrality in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. The Greek word tetelestai means it is finished. So we can trust in this biblical worldview. We can trust in the finished work of Jesus that we are promised to be reconciled, that we are promised to be fulfilled, and that we are sustained for all eternity. And so what is our response at this point? Our response is to live a life worthy of the gospel. Paul tells us, and is the, is the band up oh, there here? Paul tells us in first, uh, sorry, Philippians 1.26, Colossians 10, he tells us to live a life worthy of the gospel. Can there be any other response? Trust in the biblical worldview message of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Seek the kingdom of God. That's the only proper response that we have. So I leave you with this. Thank you so much for tracking with me this morning. We covered a lot. I'll leave you with this. This question, will you choose today? What will you choose today? Will you keep chasing the shadows or will we begin to seek the source? That is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you so much for the gospel that is the most beautiful thing that this world has to hold on to for hope. And God, I pray that if there is anybody wrestling with chasing the shadows of false worship or possessions and money, Lord, that this is the safest place for us to come together as believers in you and to confess and to repent and to bring it to your cross and to move forward. If there was somebody who's here today who has never pursued the God-centered life, Lord, I pray that, they would, that you would show them that Jesus and his finished work on the cross is the only hope that we have to find true meaning in life. Lord, thank you for being with us during this time. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Consider all the words I hands have made I see the stars I hear the rolling thunder Thy power throughout the universe displayed Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee How great Thou art how great thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to me How great thou art How great thou art Would you stand as we sing?
And when I think that God is son not sparing, send him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to me. How great thou art, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let's sing that chorus again, then sings my soul. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Amen. You may be seated.